What's up, everyone? Welcome to a brand new episode of Fear and Loathing in Cinema. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the host with the most, Dan Moran, the man who I want to live in a Puritan village with and just have all the fun. How are you? I'm doing great. How's uh, how's everything going on your end? Anything exciting to report? Uh, just lots of horror movies and uh, horror TV shows and doing that whole chestnut uh yeah. but yeah your season this is yeah kind of my season i love all the horror stuff and if you've uh you can follow me on instagram at brian kluger and i have posted uh one horror movie a day for you to watch but i've done it in uh increments of 10 so days one through 10 11 through 20 where it's just posted so you can keep up with horror movies today, last night was the 1980s film *The Gate* with a young 10-year-old Stephen Dorff. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, man? Is this your season two? Are you in, are you into the big Halloween? Uh, I, I love Halloween um, with kids. Obviously, it takes on a whole new meaning. But as far as the horror movies and everything, I always love to watch a trashy horror movie, a good horror movie. I'll pop them on anytime. So when they're constantly playing or I followed your list, there's a couple on your list when we talked about it last week um, off the air. There were a couple I hadn't seen. So I'm going to seek those out and see them. Which ones haven't you seen? Oh, where's your list? There was one like, not babysitters, but some sort of profession doing something. Hang on. I'm trying to think of which one that was. There Uh, (laughs) it it would be one on there where I was like, I've legitimately never even heard of that movie. Um, oh, Ginger Snaps. Okay. And, and Eat Locals. Okay, so Ginger Snaps is a movie from, I think, 2000 or 2001 Canadian film with a great cast, and it's about werewolves. Wonderful film. And then Eat Locals was more recently, and it's basically like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch mixed with vampires. See? See yeah. what I mean? Yeah, good, good I've stuff. I've never heard of them. If you were working <laughs> in their promotion department, I may have actually seen them before then. But no, I haven't been watching anything, uh, at least in the Halloween season. I was going to try that Netflix show that everyone's talking about, The Haunting of... Oh, Bly Manor. I watched it. it. The review is up on Boomstick. Yes, I saw your review. Have not... I mean, sounds like you enjoyed it to a certain extent. Um... I don't know. It's getting good reviews for the most part. And I like a good little creepy movie here and there. So I might check that out. Nice little, what is it? Nine episodes to nine episodes. Uh, I mean, if you liked Haunting of Hill House, which was great second season really goes the Henry James route and is more of a Gothic romance than really anything jump scare type of thing. So if you're expecting kids in it, kids are always creepier. Right. Oh, no, there, there's like a holy trifecta of creepiness with the kids, man, like sleepwalking and talking to things that aren't there, dolls and stuff. Yeah, it's all there. That's why all the movies like The Conjuring and Sinister, all these movies that are having, I don't want to say a renaissance because they all came out in the past decade, but you see them getting a lot more replay on Netflix. They're in the top 10 of Netflix or they're, you know, they're getting hyped up on the internet. You're actually seeing people talk about these movies because I just think, Put a creepy kid in the movie. Yeah, no, put a creepy... It, it, it works on many levels. Yeah, yeah. And so, in addition to your Netflix uh, comment, I actually watched Hubie Halloween, the new Adam Sandler Halloween movie on Netflix. How was that? I mean, 
say what you will. It's a fun, energetic, silly, stupid movie, but everybody's having a good time in it. There's great, there's a crazy cast. Uh, and it's, it's Adam Sandler and one of his voices and his character is great. And there's just, I don't know. It's just fun to watch something like Adam Sandler. Like, yes, we all loved uncut gems. Like that was his, yeah. but like he's making silly fun movies with friends and it's great to see them act in it. And yeah, I mean, there's nothing like scary about it, but it's not the, that's not the point. Like it's a comedy and it's pure Adam Sandler ridiculousness, which we need right now. So yeah, I, I liked it. I, like, think, I don't think we've ever talked about it on here, but I have nothing against what Adam Sandler has turned his career into. He gets, Netflix gave him like a quarter of a billion dollars to make like eight movies over the next like six or seven years. And so he's like, okay, I'm just going to go to a fun place. I'm going to invite all my best friends who I'm friends with in real life and I'm friends with on screen. We're going to make something dumb. We're going to make something silly. We're going to make something that you can watch with your seven-year-old or you can watch all the way up with your 17-year-old for an hour and a half. It's on Netflix. And then you can move on with your day, but you're going to laugh. You're going to roll your eyes. You're going to have a good time. He's making money and doing it with his friends. I'm kind of like, I can't knock that. No, I mean, like, there's only a couple of filmmakers that do that. And one yeah. is Adam Sandler and the other is Kevin Smith, really. And so they're having a good time. And <laughs> it's it's a fun movie. I like it's, it's It's lighthearted. It's warm fuzzies. You know, it's got a good message. And I mean, it's Adam Sandler, like, a lot of things like he, he, Adam Sandler has like a universe and like the MCU, Adam Sandler's universe comes to play in Hubie Halloween with characters from past movies playing the I same heard, character. I heard uh, Ben Stiller shows up as the orderly. No, there, there's like, there, there's Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison references in here, like, yeah. like to a T. Oh yeah. And not like just something on a sign, like actual characters so, so we're gonna see so we're gonna see like uh bobby boucher happy gilmore and hubie halloween all team up to beat up like <laughs> shooter mcgavin's dad or something at some point you will yes yes so he has con he has concocted his own universe and it's great to see i'm uh, in yeah so hubie halloween if you're looking for something silly and fun and you know something you can don't have to pay too much attention to but yeah check out hubie halloween it's good yeah. stuff I guess the only other thing that I throw in is I know the reviews are up on Boomstick is I watched all the Blumhouse, all four of the Blumhouse movies that came out. And Blumhouse, as anyone who's listening to this has to know, has made just a killing in producing horror movies. They are the, right now, they are the horror movie studio, I would say, in Hollywood. And they put out four smaller movies onto Amazon Prime. And I think... All of them are giving new directors, new writers an opportunity to, you know, flex their muscles and get some experience. But I think all of them suffered from being a little bit half-baked and maybe would have worked if this was like a, a quick season where each of the episodes was like 45 minutes and they were almost like black mirror psychological creepiness instead of stretching it to be 90 minutes and like trying to have a message in it. But nothing really. What surprised me is none of them are super scary. Like, none of them were scary. They were all a little bit more psychological. Uh, but not in a you're possessed demon way, just as in a like, well, that's not a fun situation. So <laughs> but those are on Prime now. You can check those out, too, if you, if you have some time to kill. 
Right. And the, I think two of your reviews are up there now from the Blumhouse series. The next two will be up there. And it's funny because I know people are going to the site <laughs> and reading for sure, because I get an email from the studio like, hey, you got to take two of those reviews down. The movies haven't come out yet. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. I'll also take them down because I can tell Dan did not like them. No, no. Like, I, I guess I posted them too early because I think some come out this coming week or something yeah. like that so they're like yeah please take those down immediately <laughs> i was like oh done, god done and done done and done <laughs> so two of them are up there so this coming week two the the other two all will four be will up. be up this week by the yes. time you hear this all four will be up oh it's good and so that, that's kind of like what the halloween stuff we're doing and then we just want to talk a little bit about you know movie theaters again and covid it seems like all movies have now been more or less pushed back at least until Christmas or until 2021 or 2022. So it's the right decision. Yeah. I, they just announced that Disney Pixar soul, their giant movie that's getting rave reviews on from, I guess it premiered at the London film festival. It was supposed to come out on Thanksgiving day. It was supposed to come out in June. They moved it to Thanksgiving and now um, it's going straight to screen uh, streaming on Christmas Day on Disney Plus. And it's not going to be that Disney Plus where you pay $30 like Mulan. It's going straight on there. So obviously, I was tuned into that with the, you know, dad dad corner over here. It's like, all right, new Disney Pixar going straight to streaming. That's awesome. But when these big, we said it last week, when these big corporations are like, we're not even going to risk trying to put out any of our tent poles. And I can't imagine sitting here looking at you know, Wonder Woman, or there's a uh, uh, Liam Neeson movie that's supposed to come out like at the end of this month. And it's just like in theaters only. And I'm like, no, it's not. I'm going to be able to see this on Prime or Hulu or something by, you know, before the year's over. I just think uh, we're not going to be seeing anything, Brian. We're not going to be going to a movie theater, I think, in this calendar year. And the rumors of Wonder Woman going straight to streaming that have really started to heat up on the blogosphere and the Twitter world. I mean, take them with a grain of salt, but I think Warner Brothers is looking to uh, get the hype behind their Justice League Snyder cut that's supposed to premiere early in 2021. I think they're trying to get some, figure out what they're going to do with their other movies, some of which they have filming right now. And it's, it looks to me like, if any of these rumors end up being true, they're looking at Wonder Woman and they're saying, there's no point in us putting it out in the theaters. It's not going to make its money back. And if it goes straight to streaming, that's the first game changer. Mulan wasn't a game changer. If Wonder Woman goes to streaming, that is a game changing event. Right, right. It is. So, I mean, Warner Brothers and HBO are thick as thieves. And, you know, HBO Max just rolled out their, their app, HBO Max, recently. Yeah. And so this would be a good opportunity for them to like, oh, well, we're releasing Wonder Woman 1984 strictly on HBO Max, you know, subscribe. Uh, I mean, they could even do a promo like, I mean, so WWE Network, I, I know I talk about it a lot, but if you subscribe, if you're a first subscriber of WWE Network, you get your first month free and it's everything. Like, so if you want to subscribe to WWE Network in April, you will get WrestleMania for free. So if... HBO does something like that, they're, they'll get 
several million subscribers instantly if they're going to do the Wonder Woman 1984. Even if half of those drop, like cancel their subscription after the first month, they'll still have half pain. And I think that's the way to go because nobody wants to pay $30 to rent a movie. But I'm glad Disney Plus listened with, you know, the Pixar film. Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've talked about it. I talked about it on every show on the podcast that like, this is horrible. This is why pirating exists is because of this type of thing. So hopefully they learn. I mean, just take a look what Hulu and Netflix did. They released original content, exclusive content, and people sign up for it. So, and and you look at the timing, you've got Mandalorian starting the end of this month. You've got WandaVision coming in, uh, I think end of November, early December. So there you have a huge Star Wars property that is going to be all the talk for eight solid weeks. Then you have the first, the first Marvel thing that we're going to see in what? Almost over 18 months since Endgame, right? Oh, yes. Over over 18 months. This is the first Marvel thing. That's going to be all the rage. And that's going to be a six to eight episode thing on, on Disney. That's going to be huge talk. So you're looking at it like Disney has 14 weeks and then they drop a Disney Pixar movie on Christmas Day. Like they have this like HBO Max and these other ones need something to make a splash. And if they waited and said, we're dropping Wonder Woman um, the week after Christmas, like New Year's, like before you celebrate 2020, before you get done with 2020, head to 1984. If they did some promo like that, let that movie sit there for, you know, be their hype machine for a solid month to six weeks and then announce, hey, we're starting Justice League Snyder Cut in February and it's going to run for every single weekend in February because they're going to turn it into four episodes. I mean, that's a way to keep subscribers. No, for sure. That's the way to do it. I hope they do that that way, but knowing them, most of their team doesn't think like that and their their finger is not on the pulse of what's good. Hopefully they do that because that would be the way to do it because, you know, like Netflix and Hulu, they'll, well, more so Netflix will release everything all at once, which for some is good, but you only talk about it for a couple weeks. But as HBO and Disney Plus are releasing an episode a week, it makes people uh, talk about it longer and that's the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, if the Justice League movie, which they're saying is going to be over four hours long, came out and I had to sit there and watch a Zack Snyder movie for over four hours, I would go insane. I mean, <laughs> I go insane. my brain would explode. But the movie would like, actually be 30 minutes long, but slow-mo is four hours long. <laughs> but, if I, but if you told me, hey, it's a 52-minute episode, four or five weeks in a row, then guess what? I watched those 52 minutes. We talk about it like it's a TV show. We talk about what we know is coming. We analyze it. We spend a month talking about it. If they released it all at once, all the Snyder boys are going to talk about it for that weekend. And all the other people are going to be like, I saw Batman punch someone. That was cool. And they're all going to move on with their day. But if you allow people to like get into it and really talk about it, like I think half the success of Mandalorian was honestly the week to week. No. Yeah. Because it kept you interested. I mean, obviously baby Yoda, huge. When the baby Yoda thing happened, the world jumped on board, but waiting week to week to talk about that show by, by the time we got to the final episode, like that seventh or eighth episode, however many there were in the first season, I had people that I know don't give a crap about Star Wars talking about Baby Yoda. 
but you no, know? yeah, they talk about Baby Yoda, but then it also talks about like mythology and Star Wars, right. and kind of like a big show that did that way early was Lost, like releasing it at once a week, and then people would go on message boards. They would like theories and conspiracy. Uh-huh. And it kept the action and the feeling alive. And that's what Star Wars is doing right now with Mandalorian because people are like, what's Baby Yoda doing? Or the child, I should say, um, not Baby Yoda. And then um, who's this person? Is it a Jedi? Are we going to see this? Like it, it keeps it up and I like it. And it's because it's interesting because as you said, you know, the Baby Yoda, the child brought the world on board mm-hmm. where the the show is a a it's the nerd's paradise well like that but like game of thrones was like it got everybody that's not supposed yeah. to be interested in all of that stuff it yeah. got people interested in all the dragons and fairies and goblins and monsters and yeah, zombies yeah. so people yeah star wars movies make billions of dollars because everybody will go see it Wives will go see it with their husbands. Girlfriends will see it with their boyfriends, but not a crazy TV show that lasts like 10 episodes and are really into it. So I, like, I, it can't, I can't wait. There's one person in my life. I know they're going to text me. They're going to be like, who's Ahsoka Tano? <laughs> and I'm going to be like, never thought right. I'd hear those words out of your mouth. <laughs> That's what I mean. Uh, here we are. This is what Disney has done to us because you're asking me this question and I am here for it. Let's go. <laughs> so yeah, so it's a... Uh, We've talked about it before to end this little conversation before we get into our, our fifth, uh, which we haven't even mentioned yet, which is amazing. Okay. But uh, yeah, so um, to end this out, I think with streaming, when we've talked about it before, is that movie theaters, much like airports after 9-11, are never going to be the same. Like movie theaters, as we once knew it back early this year, January and February, they won't be the same if they ever come back. I mean, I think they will still sort of be here for here and there, but I think there will be big changes like airports after 9-11. I really firmly believe that. And so I think these streaming companies and these networks are really, they're playing the game of like, this might be what the future holds. This is how we do it from now on. So interesting. Do you you think that's the case? I mean, with what just happened to Regal, uh, that's, I worked at Regal Gateway in Austin for 11 years. I started sweeping popcorn and then I was a projectionist and a manager through college and stuff. And that theater is being shut down. Regal, you know, is shutting 500 of their theaters in the United States. And they announced, or I have some, I have some people who still work for there. That one's probably not going to be reopened at all. Like that's going to be one of the ones they shutter because it wasn't doing great business last summer when things were open. So that might just be a sunk cost they're going to close. And my thought process is, you know, I don't know if studios are going to start buying theaters or what, but you say compared to 9-11, things will never be the same as far as, you know, the process of going into a movie theater. I'm not, I don't know if airports are still there. I don't know if, you know, like... I don't, I don't know if theaters are still going to be there at the easily accessible level that they are or were a year ago. I'm wondering if you're, for a few years, if you're going to have to seek out a theater. I, right. I, don't know, I don't know if it's going to be smart for, I don't know if it'll be smarter if um, a Doctor Strange movie coming out, why, why spend $200 million and make a two-hour movie why not just spend a hundred million dollars and make a five episode series? 
Exactly. And you'll get more content that way. Right. You'll get you know? over a month talking about it, which we just went over. More subscribers, more this, more that. You can have cameos. Tom Holland shows up for 10 minutes instead of his on set for two weeks. It's, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. It's scary, but let's be more positive and talk about Puritan. Um, yeah, Puritan. Puritan. Yes, yes. We're moving on to our main event right now of Fear and Loathing in Cinema. Episode five, Milestone. This is our fifth episode. I'm so excited to do this with Dan. Yeah. But uh, so we've done, we, we, we've done Speed 2. Yep. We've done, uh, we've done Jurassic Park 3. We've done Aliens 4, um, which was Resurrection. And we did Rocky 5. Uh, those have been our shows this week. We have not done a sequel, but we have dove. We have taken a nosedive into the M. Night Shyamalan universe. And we are going with this 2004 film, The Village. Oh my, The Village. So excited to do this. Uh, Dan had this great idea to do The Village and we were just both on board. A little bit of background technical information for you about The Village. Yes, this movie premiered in the heat of the summer in July in 2004. The runtime is about 108 minutes. It cost $60 million and ended up making $260 million. It is produced by Sam Mercer and Scott Rudin, written and produced and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. And it stars a crazy cast. Crazy cast. Yeah, we'll get into in a second. Um, cinematography by Roger Deakins, who, I mean, the best, yep, one of the best cinematographers ever, who's done pretty much all of the Coen Brothers movies and Blade Runner 2049. And the music was by James Newton Howard, which earned The Village an Oscar nomination for the music and was released by a, um, a subsidiary of Disney, Buena Vista and Touchstone, yeah. which is pretty cool. So, and this is, uh, this is, let's see, this is the fourth film by, the, by M. Night Shyamalan. So before The Village, of course, M. Night did The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs. And then comes The Village. So this, The Village was before kind of where he went down a path of not making great movies. But we might go, we might visit those others at a later date, but... Um, the Village is kind of the last film that M. Night Shyamalan made before his name kind of was in conjunction with uh, like a dumpster fire, basically. <laughs> he was uh, still, at this moment, he was still untouchable. Yes. Yeah. He was like, he was basically the new Spielberg, basically. Right. People, people were like, oh, it's an M. Night movie. Oh, I'm yes. going to an M. Night movie. Not a movie starring all the people we'll talk about in a minute. Not a horror movie. They'd be like, Oh, M. Night's got a new joint coming out? I'm going to go check it. I mean, my mom knew who M. Night Shyamalan was back at this time. No, for sure. He was, the, he was the big thing. And so the trailer for the movie was really cool. There was a lot of production stuff that was out in the news about it. And so before we get into, like, what we, like, uh, how does it hold up? Well, we just got to go through this cast real quick. Um, the cast... As you've known in like movies like Signs and Unbreakable and Sixth Sense, they're kind of smaller cast with only maybe one to three people that were really well-known A-list stars in it. But The Village, Jesus Christ. You have 
Bryce Dallas Howard, who at the time, this was kind of her first big breakout role. Like she'd done a couple of things before that, but mainly uh, just like extra work or like very small roles. But this was her first one. And then you have Joaquin Phoenix, Adrian Brody, William Hurt, Sigourney Weaver, Brendan Gleeson, Cherry Jones, Judy Greer, which we'll talk about in a second, which is really funny. Michael Pitt, Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. And uh, Charlie Hofheimer, which, uh, oh my goodness, just a lot of stuff there. But crazy cast. Okay, so going, talking about that cast, going into this movie, we saw it. Dan, what was your expectation when you saw it when it came out in 2004? And has it held up more than 16 years later? So my expectations in 2004 were obnoxiously high i mean (laughs) i love the sixth sense sixth sense everyone will tell you this story mine's actually true i saw that movie for the first time when it ended i went out and then bought a ticket to the next available show and we went ate mcdonald's and went back and watched it again realizing he was dead the whole time you know i saw it twice in one day because i was like holy cow um i think unbreakable is one of the best I think it's the best comic book that it's just a fourth of a comic book story. Now let's not talk about the sequels, which has kind of ruined the legacy of unbreakable, but unbreakable on its own, I think is a masterwork signs. I think is undeservingly bashed. Um, Science is a good movie. I will fight to the death. Anybody who says science is a bad movie. Is it all meetened up at the end? Blah, blah, blah. Science, yawn, yawn, yawn. But as a whole, of its themes and the horror and the surprises and the tension, I think it's brilliant. So when I saw this trailer and I saw those big monsters with the red cloaks and like porcupines things sticking out and Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix and we're going back in time, lost my mind. On board, I know I was there opening day. I think I saw it, the midnight show, all about it. I walked out of that movie going, what the hell was that? Come on, M. Night. I was one of those. I mean, it was 16 years ago. I'm still a jerk today, but I was a bigger asshole then. I thought the ending was botched. I didn't like the ending at all. I'm sure we're going to get into it later. I thought it was a cop-out. I kind of thought it was lazy, and I didn't like it. And I'll be honest, I think this is maybe the third time that I saw The Village was this week. So in 16 years, and that's very wow. rare for me. I think I saw it opening weekend. I probably saw it again while I was in theaters because I worked at a movie theater, so why not? And then I don't think I saw it again until earlier this week. And I got to tell you, I was wrong. I liked it a lot more this time around. I have problems with the ending, but I think the first 90 minutes of this movie is some of the best work that Shyamalan's done. I think it's the best performances he's been able to put on screen. I think everything clicks, the tension clicks, the suspense clicks. It all works so seamlessly. I don't think he sticks the landing still. I still have some issues, but held up for me. And now I'm sitting here, if I was going to give it, you know, a a letter grade, I probably would have said back then D plus C minus just because I was a bitter youngin. And now I'm thinking this is, this might be his second or third best movie that he's done. Even with the ending problems I have, I, I, I loved it. So you kind of did a 180. I like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board now. I'm, uh, I'm moving to the village. 
You're moving to the village. He's one of the village people, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Girls. Uh, so I remember seeing this in the film, and much like Dan, I was real excited for this. I, you know, at the time in 2004, you know, I was finishing my time at KU, and I was still, you know, on all those early web movie websites. You know, you know, not like Deadline or anything like that, but other movie fan sites, and there was tons of talk about this movie we're all big M. Night Shyamalan fans and so I was real excited and I saw the trailer and went to see it and I actually liked it and it was one of the movies the M. Night Shyamalan movies that I did not predict like I couldn't like because I called Sixth Sense for sure just because you called it? yes I did I, mm. I'm trying to remember who I saw it with but I said into the to them in the theater I'm like dude he's dead and okay. I, I had him or her, I want him or her before we're done with this podcast forever. I want them on here to back you up on that. That okay. is, you deserve a trophy for that. No, I, I'll tell you how I figured that out because you know I was really into film and studying all that stuff, okay. and I remember how he shot it when that scene in Sixth Sense where Haley Joe Osment is explaining it. It did not focus on Haley Joe Osment. It was a slow pan on Bruce Willis. They don't believe they're dead. They're not. And it just uh, focused on Bruce Willis. So I'm like, dude, why aren't they focused on Haley Joel? They're just showing Bruce Willis. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I bet he's dead. And like it happened. I'm like, no way. And then with um, with Unbreakable, I'm like, this is a comic book movie. There's good and evil here, whatever. Signs, there is a kind of a twist ending, but not really. Yeah. Not really. Um, but here I was... And so, okay, so going back to The Village, I did not predict it, but going back, like, now, because, I mean, I bought the movie on DVD, and M. Night Shyamalan's The Village is the only movie out of his catalog that has not made it to Blu-ray yet, which is really, really? yeah, that is very true. Most deserving, it's freaky deaky. No, they need to be a 4K of it, because it's, like, the, one of his most beautifully shot movies. Yes. Um, Sorry. So, he... So going back, there are several things that we'll talk about later. And I'm like, how did I not know this? You know, yeah. how did I not predict this? And so back then, I really liked it. Like, I just loved it being the time. Yes, there are problems with it. But overall, I thought the message was great, um, which we'll get to in a second. And mm -hmm. um, just how it was done, even though the the – because there's two two twist endings here. Like yeah. I think they're not being a twist ending in signs. He did two here, so I think that was pretty cool. Um, but in coming back to it all these years, because I think I mean I've seen it more than three times. I think I because I had the DVD of it, then I watched it a few times, and then I watched it uh, maybe in the last ten or no, maybe like eight years or something like that, and then. I watched it this morning again and it's been a while. So watching it again, I was like, damn movie, this movie is dead. This movie is good. good. <laughs> there, and, but there's like, there's moments of it because this movie got critically panned and for, and there's, there's good reasons for it. Like they're just not saying they hate it, but maybe people. So M night Shyamalan along with other directors, they're making a movie and you expect something and then you yeah. expect something from the trailer like if quentin tarantino went off his wheelhouse and did like a romantic comedy with no tarantino aspect to it but they showed a trailer that was uh 
reminiscent of a Tarantino movie, they would go and they would hate it because like, what, why this, this was something different that they showed the trailer, it's Tarantino, what does it make sense? So I think going into this movie, this is a very different type of M. Night Shyamalan movie that he hadn't done prior to this really. And so, because it tackles different tones and themes. So that's why I think it was critically panned, but I would say those people are wrong. And if they revisited it today, they would have a different yeah. uh, tone with it. So, um, I agree. That, I'm one yeah. of those people. As one of those people, I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. Like, I think change, like, I think there's a, something where you see a movie when you're a different age, you're in yeah. a different part of your life and you come and revisit it and you see something different. I think this is one of those movies. Yeah, it absolutely is. So the movie, what's the movie about? Uh, Dan, <laughs> please enlighten the people. Kind of walk us through, walk everybody through if they've forgotten kind of what happens in this movie. Uh, all right. So it's about a village. <laughs> With village people in it. Are we good? <laughs> yeah, um, we're good. So it's an it's a village, um uh Covington. I think the name of the village is Covington, but it's a it's a village and there are elders in this village, and it is your typical Puritan pilgrim looking lifestyle um in uh, Pennsylvania, because that's where he films all his movies, but what you would picture from old frontier life. And yeah, it's supposed to take place in the 1800s, like right. early 19th century, up, something like that. Yeah. Uh, the movie opens up with um, the death of a child, and it seems to have really just destroyed the elders and all the adults in this village. And Joaquin Phoenix, who is the older son of one of the elders in this um, community, says, You know, the, the little boy died. I should go to this town. I can leave our village and I can go get medicine or some sort of supplies so that this never happens again and they tell no you can't leave so you're introduced to the theory of not the theory but the fact that there are monsters that live outside in the woods that surround this village to protect the town to protect the village from these monsters there are lanterns and watchtowers set up all around the entire village in what is some of the best looking cinematography just having these yellow glowing fires you know protecting the town everyone who watches the line of the woods is wearing a yellow cloak i mean it's just brilliant it's beautiful to look at but what ends up happening is there's a monster attack joaquin phoenix's character um protects and defends bryce dallas howard who is blind um she's blind in this movie she is also the daughter of the chief of the village the chief elder who is played by William Hurt in a fantastic role by him. Turns out Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix have a love interest in each other. There's also a handicapped gentleman played by Adrian Brody, which I'm sure we will touch on shortly. He's severely mentally disabled, to say the very least. He gets jealous of the romance between Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix, and he stabs Joaquin Phoenix in... in we will definitely deep dive deep into this. One of the most unsettling depictions of a stabbing that I remember being on film ever. And I remember the gasps in the audience when it happened. Joaquin Phoenix is obviously dying because he gets stabbed. Nobody's ever supposed to leave the village. William Hurt reveals to Bryce Dallas Howard, 
it's all kind of a ruse, girl, and you're going to walk down this path and we're going to send you to the town or the local area to um, get that medicine because you're blind. She goes off on an adventure to um, get, get medicine, and it turns out that this movie takes place in 2004? Yeah, present day. It's present day, and they're on, they're on land owned by William Hurt's character and they pay park rangers to protect anyone from getting in. The park rangers don't even know there's people living on there. It's a no-fly zone deemed by the government. It's part of a psychological experiment. They've been there for, I think, what did they say, like 30-something years because of yes. how, violent, how violent the real world was getting and that violence was never supposed to follow them to the village. But obviously... Now there's a stabbing. So we'll get into all those themes. But ultimately, it turns out the monsters were actually the adult elders. Yeah, in costume and makeup. Yeah. Right. In, in, co- in awesome costumes and makeup um, to scare everybody to never wanting to leave the woods so they would never discover the time. They send the blind girl off to do it um, because she's not going to be able to see as much in order to save Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and the... Adrian Brody in the secondary twist, I guess, of the thing. We know the monsters aren't real while she's traveling towards the end of this. We're not sure if the village is in the present day yet, but we know that the monsters aren't real. And when she's out, we finally get our, a look at a monster in the daylight. And it is terrifying. It is a scary scene. And Bryce Dallas Howard uses her, uh, She's blind, so I'm not saying this to be mean, but echolocation or whatever she's brilliant that she's <laughs> yes. like honestly, she's using the sound of the wood and like crunching of leaves to time it out to jump out of the way of this monster that falls into a tiger pit essentially and is stabbed to death at the bottom of the tiger pit. And it, it's revealed that it was uh, Adrian Brody's mentally handicapped character that falls and dies in the pit. And then that way, Bryce Dallas Howard can come back and say. I killed one of the monsters that tried to attack me and they can keep this ruse going for everybody else in the village and continue their mission on. So essentially the second twist in the movie is that the boy, the handicapped boy escaped, pretended to be a monster, but it tricked Bryce Dallas Howard to be honest in her assessment. There is a monster in the woods, stay out of the woods, but I killed it, but there's probably more out there. And they're going to use the death of that handicapped boy in order to keep their secret alive and keep their experiment going, which has a million moral things to talk about. But I felt like that was the big second twist. Is that what you meant by it? Well, yeah, well, like the second twist of being, you know, the or the two twists being that it takes place present day and the monsters aren't real. Right. Also, I guess a third twist could be that they're going to use all of this fakery. They awfully to, cool with it. Yeah, no, yeah, so... That, you know, that, that's definitely the whole plot of the movie, which if you may or may not. So let's kind of talk about... Let's, let's just do a quick disclaimer for anyone listening to our podcast. If we're going to talk about a movie from 15, 16 years ago and you haven't seen it, watch the movie and then come join us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to spoil movies that just came out for you, but this is to go back in time and see if something's good. Right, right. So... After this disclaimer, so the <laughs> <laughs> we mean we just we we we're we're spoilerific here, but you know we do yeah. that came out two three decades ago, so you should have seen it. So let's talk about some of the elements 
of the village that maybe M. Night was trying to, to convey here. So as Dan said, there is this town where this group of people came together and formed like this Puritan society in present day. And they were in the seven, 1970s. And in the film, they kind of talk about through kind of like an audio flashback of these adults that have had severe uh, heartache, loss, and trauma from loved ones being killed or committing suicide. Right. And this group of people met inside a grief counseling center. Mm-hmm. And they all thought to themselves that it'd be great to create this like little village mm-hmm. where nothing bad can happen. No violence, nothing can happen. So what I think M. Night Shyamalan was trying to say, what M. Night Shyamalan is, is maybe hinting at is that everybody takes or deals with loss, death, and grief of loved ones and friends differently. And maybe this was their way to do it in the film. And who's to say it's right or wrong, you know? Um, But it's like, it's pretty crazy the links that this village went to, these, these elders went to, to keep people, quote unquote, safe. Because of course, even in this village, it's not safe. Somebody does get hurt, like, mortally. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he's trying to say that no matter how hard you work, you can't escape. Sounds bad to say it this way, but you can't escape the horrors of the world. I mean, grief, loss. Jealousy. Jealousy. Like, that's a big death, thing. Sadness, hurt in general is going to follow you for your life the same way that happiness, joy, triumph, all those things are going to follow you. And them trying to hide from it um, through a their own made up time machine, the real the fact that it lasted as long as it did, almost twenty something years before an event like this happened in in their village, is I think a testament to the type of people that they truly are. If we're being honest, like there's some good people there. If they can raise that many children and have a society function like that for twenty years without any true loss, heartache, or anything, that's that's pretty amazing. Right, and so. With, I guess, Bryce Dallas Howard's character being blind, you know, they use that to their advantage. And because, like, I mean, in the real world, you're not going to send a blind woman in the middle of the woods to hop a tall fence to get drugs. (laughs) Like, how are you going to (laughs) find your way places? (laughs) But with them keeping their society, their village uh secret that's the only way they can do it you know i mean that's kind of what they have to do and it worked out perfectly for them uh to do that so i think the elders had a they they have good intentions most like you know everything starting out they had good intentions like dan said like it's survived for three decades basically until now when something happens. But yeah, it's, I think that's an underlying theme of this movie is dealing with grief, loss and sadness and uh, you know, what can go wrong with the world. But again, I think that's part of being human is that you get the good and the bad and you deal with it and you move forward and you learn from it. But Mm -hmm. these old, these, these elders did not want to do that. Like they, they couldn't get around the fact of their loss and grief, even in the final moments where they're standing all standing up saying we're going to 
keep it how it is, even when the leader of the village says like, we can stop it right now. Right. Yeah. It's, and I mean, this is something that follows all of Shamo. Obviously loss and acceptance was a huge thing in the sixth sense. Um, survivor's guilt and relationships and hurting your family was a huge part of Unbreakable. Um, Signs was a whole movie about grief and loss and reckoning with that and moving on. And this was a movie about a whole group of people who tried to do that. And I think for as surface level as we try to look at this movie in particular, where we say, it's about a monster, and they were lying about it the whole time. Um, Shyamalan really swung for the fences, I feel, thematically, to really try to get something to resonate um, with the human condition and how you can't escape these things if you're going to live in any sort of society, these things are going to happen. Yeah, because it's part of fear, because I think these monsters are the epitome and the symbolism of fear and death. Of the elders. Maybe us. Yeah, the, the, like the monsters, the, the, yeah. the actual monsters, because as Bryce and everybody's, the fear is coming to them and they get scared and run away. But Bryce faces it head on by actually opening her arms to embrace it. And right. most people are scared of something. And once, if they actually face it, they'll find out just like in the movie, it's not what it seems. It's not as bad as you think it is. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a lot going on in this movie that people didn't pick up on that M. Night was telling. Yes, I agree with that. And I did not. In 2004, Dan was just like, this is dumb. But I mean, I'm watching, <laughs> watching it back. I mean, it's, very, it's a much deeper movie than anyone gives it credit for. And I went back, like you said earlier, and reread some of the reviews. And man, I think people missed the whole point of the movie. Right? I think so, too. Um, because I yeah. think they were kind of trying to look at it as like okay, me. like a mo- like a monster movie, like and what what right. is all this this underlying stuff here? So I, I think that's kind of what kind of happened there. And, but I think this the theme throughout the whole movie is that good. But there's also like love, and they're they're tackling the romance in a, in a different way. I think where because there's many people who love the same person because it's a small village. <laughs> Yes. So, I mean, and that's one of the more core, I mean, that's one of the more, I think, fumbled things is the way he handled the love story. Right, right. Uh, but what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? I think they're just trying to show it. So, okay, what, el- what else is there as far as like any other underlying comment or commentary in the real world? Uh, I think we're going to get, I mean, you just want to do ridiculous political and social commentary now i feel like yeah let's do that now this is where kind of in that um adrian brody i don't think this movie would be made today in 2020 he plays a full-on and this word i understand it gets people he doesn't have an identifiable mental illness he is playing a mentally retarded person no he is private i'm not being offensive i'm not being rude to people who suffer from things He's not diagnosed with anybody. He's legitimately a walking stereotype of a caricature almost. Right. And so you, so you say that, and, you know, we, we joked about um, the Tropic Thunder, you know, never go full retard. And so the question is, does Adrian Brody here go full retard, as opposed to say, because let's talk about that. He has kind of 
the physical mannerisms where he can't really get out speech. He's almost in a, you know, what's eating Gilbert Grape, Leonardo DiCaprio, very smiley, clapping, laughing at inopportune times, can't right. really. Uh, but he's also menacing. Yeah, he's also really menacing. So, however, that being said, if you're comparing it to maybe Sean Penn and I Am Sam or right. um, Leonardo DiCaprio and what's eating Gilbert Grape, there's something behind Adrian Brody's character of being a mentally retarded person that he has played chess. Like he goes and he stabs somebody like, and he is vicious with it in like quiet. He knows what he's doing. Uh, And then in the film, like he actually sees this costume and he puts it on and he goes out and he is like tactical with scaring Bryce Dallas Howard. Right. Like, so is he actually, because that, because that doesn't make sense. Even now watching again, I'm like, how does, if he's playing, if he's going the full mentally handicapped route, like it doesn't make sense. Like there's has to be some sort of working up there where he's calculating what he's I, doing. I think he's almost, uh, what's the movie with Richard Gere and, um, oh, what's his name? Edward Norton, where Edward Norton pretends. Oh yeah, the, the yeah, Edward Norton's breakout role. Um, oh my God, Edward Primal Norton. Fear. Yeah, Primal Fear, yes. Um, I don't think it gets to the Primal Fear level where he's going full on pretending to have a disability to get out of a courtroom thing. I just mean it more of a sense is it's obvious M. Night Shyamalan wrote this character. I don't think he was trying to be offensive with writing the character. I'm just saying- No, not at all. If we're going to talk about the political and social commentary of what this movie would be if it came out today, there is 0.0% chance- that this character would be made because at the end of the day, the the real villain of this movie is a disturbed and handicapped individual. Right. At least how it's portrayed on the screen because you and I are talking about, well, he seems pretty smart, but that's never hinted at in the movie to the no, point where anyone else is like, is he faking this? It's like, no, he's a damaged individual, but he's the one who stabs somebody. He's the one who tries to kill Bryce Dallas Howard. He's the one who turns this whole world upside down as the evil from the cities they were trying to escape. And I just don't think you can put all that baggage on a uh, mentally disturbed and handicapped person in today's day and age. So right, no, I, you can't. I think this character would have to be reworked to such a level for this movie to get off the ground. And I think maybe me watching it through my 2020 glasses, it still worked for me because it was still the twists and... Um, the underlying themes and the, just the look of the movie all overcame it. But if I want to sit down here and have a 2020 political social thing, I could just see if this movie came out today, every review is going to be about Adrian Brody playing a mentally handicapped person. Right. Right. No, it, it will. They will, they will, they'll miss, miss the whole point of the movie for sure in this day and age as you know, they find something right. with everything, but yeah. That's my big that's my big social commentary is I'm like, this movie would never get made today. And I can see how if somebody went back and watched it, they'd be like, that's a problematic character. <laughs> so like do you think the movie would only work with his character being that way? Or do you think his character would work just as well if he was um quote unquote normal? Like, you know, he didn't have this mentally just... handicapped, or maybe he was autistic since that's seems to be the rage in films these days. I think if they had um, um, Michael Pitt's characters in this, and Michael Pitt can pay, play a 
true scumbag creepster if he wanted to. And if his love advance was spurned by Bryce Dallas Howard and he just got jealous, I think he could play a fantastic jealous person who went after Lucius. Uh, that's, I'm sorry, that Lucius is uh, Joaquin Phoenix. No, so it is. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix. What I'm saying is there was another character in this movie who's around the same age, another boy. And my point I'm trying to make is if another boy got spurned by Bryce Dallas Howard and attacked Joaquin Phoenix and ran off and hid in the woods and discovered the costumes, I, I don't think it would have, um, and it was just revealed later on that that's what happened. He discovered the costumes in the woods and was like, kind of menacing Bryce Dallas Howard because he was jealous and upset. I don't think that would have hurt the movie's overall themes or any of the events. Yeah, I don't think so either. It could have been Adrian Brody for all I care. Adrian Brody could have played the spurned lover. Right, right. Oh, yeah, he purposely wrote this character in. And, you know, this was was before he won an Oscar for The Pianist, right? I'm trying to remember when The Pianist came out. I have to go check that. Uh, after that's just him flexing that's him holding up a golden trophy (laughs) (laughs) the pianist was 2002 so yes wow so So this was two years after okay so that's what i mean i i don't know whatever i don't we can we can move on from it but we definitely had to at least address the uh, elephant in the room of that character and the portrayal of that character and how the whole plot kind of hinges on Oh, that handicapped guy really ruined it for us. No, for sure. On paper and on screen, if you break it down, doesn't sound great. (laughs) No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And but it also begs a question again: like, was he really as mentally handicapped as As the screenplay as he put on? So because there's there's elements of the film where it would suggest that he's not, but in the end, I guess he was. Uh, So. There's that aspect of it. And then um, let's talk a little bit about Bryce Dallas Howard's blind character. Um, So her being blind, I mean, definitely a story point so that she can't tell anybody in the village where anything is. But her name Ivy is, is interesting because she, Ivy climbs walls and she does in the film, which is, you know, a little thing uh what do you think do you think she did a good job playing a blind person yeah okay i mean i didn't have any so if we're on this sounds like we're on like anyway this is our latest topic on disability film corner but (laughs) portrayal of able-bodied people well no no like i mean i i get her because i mean there's been plenty of people that've played blind people yeah yeah i thought she did i thought she did i think that this is actually of all her roles she's ever done i think this is her best role i think she i think she's better in this than she is in the help I think she's better in this than she is in a lot of her other ones that get a lot more um, clout, if you will. I I think she's cute. She's charming. There's a um, charisma to her and an energy that you kind of get why Joaquin Phoenix was attracted to her. I think she did a great job with it. And she's blind for story purposes, but um it doesn't bother me the way that she portrays the blindness at all because for her it's nothing she's tripping people with her cane she's breaking up fights you know she's 
she's arguably the strongest character in this entire story, um, despite being blind. And so I thought she did a fantastic job in it. And I actually thought the character was, was pretty great too. Oh, good, good, good. I, I, th- I think she did a really good job. And this was her breakout role again. She's a, oh. This is her first starring role. And uh, everybody knew her as Ron Howard's daughter. So they were like, oh, she's doing well. She's, she's doing the director well. of The Mandalorian. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so saying that, let's talk about a couple little funny little instances here and there. Okay. Um, so such as Judy Greer um, playing... And- she, yeah, she's great. She's the one that at the beginning of the movie professes her love in such a joyful, great, childlike way to Joaquin Phoenix, who Joaquin Phoenix in this movie is just stoic and doesn't give a shit. And along comes uh, Judy Greer, who is saying, like, I love you. Oh, my God, I love you. I want to sing and dance with you. And he's, and then the next scene is just her crying because he totally like, it's like, nope, no, thank you. But her name in this movie is Kitty, and yeah. she played a another role called Kitty in Arrested Development, the series, yeah. which is super funny. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but I think that aspect of it's really, really great uh, in the film. But I thought that was uh, pretty funny. Um, also, no, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You're doing funny ones. Uh, funny ones. Also, uh, I guess not really a nitpick really, but something funny. Cause so with Bryce Dallas Howard playing a blind woman, it's said that, you know, blind people or deaf people they're if they have, uh, they don't have one sense, their other senses are heightened. Right. And so something that I think M. Night Shyamalan didn't uh, explore was her heightened sense of uh, smell because I would imagine if she gotten close to the monster, she would have smelled Adrian Brody or blood or something. And that never comes to fruition. Like, wait, this is not a monster. This is a uh, smell like Adrian Brody. You smell like Noah. What you doing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just I'm just saying something like that that I thought yeah. that was kind of funny that was not explored. I get why it wasn't. I'm not nitpicking it. I just thought that was a little funny aspect of I, the film. I think obviously this movie's not big on the humor, but um, Shyamalan is he really takes it to a whole new level with his built up tension and creepiness. Mm-hmm. In this movie, the first the first attack on the village by the monsters when you don't know what they are and it's the guy looking down, it's his viewpoint from his tower looking down his ladder and that creature just walks and it's half a second of a scene. Yeah. And you see that creature go by. It made me jump in the theater. It's still, I knew it was coming watching it at home on the couch and it's the, the building of the tension and um when Bryce Dallas Howard's standing on the porch waiting for Joaquin Phoenix to come and lead her into... And has her hand out, and it's like this slow, silent, long shot of just her hand in the darkness. And then you see that creature just come forward, and then right away... uh, The creature emerges from shadow, almost in a slow motion. It's just such a brilliant shot. And then James Newton Howard just dunks all over the scene with one of the one of his best scores i think um 
during all all these creepy scenes. He has such an, incredible music in this movie. And I think that's something that isn't needs to be more appreciated about the movie in general is that the tension building in this movie and the suspense is incredible. It is it is top notch. Even she has an entire battle with Noah in the monster suit and you don't know it's Noah in broad daylight. You can see every single thing that's happening and the trick of 99% of horror movies is shadows, darkness, the more you see, the less scary it is. And this, it's scarier. Yes, it is. And it's tough to pull that off. Truly tough for any director to pull off a broad daylight horror scene. And and this one is just... I mean, it, it's a great movie. So many good set pieces. The, the, yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I love, it's good. It's good. So, is there uh, any dialogue that stuck out to you in the movie? I didn't get... I, I mean, I knew... The dialogue is more of a nitpick like you had, whereas if they built this place in like 1977, why did they talk except to trick the, obviously to trick the audience for, for M. Night Shyamalan's movie, but there's no chance they would be talking like they were 18th century people. Right. And you know, going back and visiting that, that aspect, I feel like the first time we see Joaquin Phoenix in the movie, he's wearing blue jeans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I need to check that. But yeah, so I mean, that's just a little nitpick, but they had to do that for the audience more than anything. Right. Like, I, I, there's like little elements like in the houses, and I'm like, I feel like this wouldn't have been around in the early mid 18th century, but maybe so. But like, your brain doesn't pick on, on that. I mean, you're seeing the costumes and how the way they talk and the houses, and you're just focused on that, not the little details. Right. And those were probably because M. Night Shyamalan's a big guy on detail. Those yeah. are probably all in there on purpose. I, no, on purpose. No, that's what I'm saying. I think they're on purpose because they might have not been able, this village might not have been able to recreate this exactly. So they're just doing with, with what they have. But yeah, as far as dialogue goes, it's one of those. I mean, you can't have William Hurt be like, hey, that's groovy, man. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on with this movie? This is so weird. This is the 18th century. It would have been a dead giveaway. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, with all that being said, we got to talk about a little bit about um, the uh, some of the behind the scenes info uh, about this uh, movie, which is pretty fun, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So um, as it was discussed prior to the film coming out in 2004, M. Night Shyamalan actually put the entire cast through a 19th century boot camp for a few weeks where they kind of lived in a 19th century type of world full time to get them ready for the the movie, which was pretty cool. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I love when they do stuff like that. Um, it's always it's always funny. To, to think about a bunch of millionaire actors having to go to a camp so that they can pretend that they were poor or something, you know, for a little while. Um, but, but I'll bet it, I'll bet it got the, the dialogue in their head, which is probably the most important part. You don't want to slip up on talking like it's the 19th century. Anybody right. can throw on a costume. So I'm sure it was important, but it, it still always makes me laugh. The, my favorite one 
that if you've ever heard the stories about Saving Private Ryan, it's how Spielberg sent the entire cast to a boot camp together, including um, Tom Hanks, but they yeah. didn't. Send, but they didn't send Matt Damon. <laughs> so that when the cast, when the cast finally got together, that whole entire cast, the group going to save him, had already lived in barracks and was sleeping outside doing a boot camp for two weeks. So they're acting. They were much more on each other's side. And when they went to actually start filming with Damon, and Damon just shows up, you know, in a Maserati or whatever and hadn't been on set for that long, hadn't gone through the boot camp, not everybody knows him, the resentment was a lot easier for some of the characters to portray. And I always love when they do them for those reasons. This one, it had to be dialogue. I can't yeah, imagine that's what I'm thinking. talk like that. Right. Uh, so there was that aspect of it. And also, since we've done an episode on Jurassic Park, Bryce Dallas Howard and Judy Greer played sisters in Jurassic World. <laughs> Never forget. Never forget. Um, so now the question is, would this movie been any different if... So Adrian Brody was uh, cast as Noah, the uh, mentally handicapped person in the film. Yes. Originally, the part went to Ashton Kutcher, but he had to drop out for scheduling reasons. So would the oh, movie man. be any different if Ashton Kutcher played the mentally... Uh, disabled character in this movie. I I shudder to think. Oh man, I just shudder to think what that would be. So this is 2004, mind you, where Ashton was like everywhere. Oh yeah, no, huge star. I'm not saying from I. Does he have that range? I mean, without it being comical, because I didn't laugh at anything Adrian Brody did. He's a no, I didn't either. Actor. Yeah, I think it would have, oh man, I don't, people would have seen Ashton Kutcher and they would have been taken out of the movie. Especially playing that sort of disabled person. I feel yeah. like it would have come across more of, we are poking fun at this kind of disability because of Ashton Kutcher's reputation. So I'm glad he dropped out. No, for sure. Like, I mean, Ashton Kutcher was good to Steve Jobs. Like that was his like maybe first role where you didn't see like Ashton Kutcher really. Like, you I mean, say what you will about butterfly effect, but... Um, yeah, so that would have been interesting. So, um, also, also, in addition to Ashton Kutcher, do you know who also M. Night Shyamalan wanted to play Noah before they offered it to Adrian Brody? No idea. I'm going to name you three names. I'm going to name you three names. Oh, I'm so excited. To play the mentally handicapped person. Aaron Eckhart. Thomas Jane and Hayden Christensen. Oh, wow. They were going for a whole different character with those three. So, oh, it's interesting. Oh, my God, it's crazy. So Hayden Christensen right off of being Darth Vader, for sure. But Hayden Christensen, Aaron Eckhart, and Thomas Jane are, like, really good actors. <laughs> but wow. I can't see any of them. Well, yeah, I don't know. Adrian Brody just has this way about him that I believed it. <laughs> yeah, no, it could, it could, I can't picture it. Most of the time I love these casting decisions. If they had anybody but Adrian Brody, it would have been too comedic. Right, right. Like you like Thomas Jane and I yeah. can see Thomas Jane, maybe Aaron Eckhart. I just can't. That dude just oozes like a madman John Hamm style about him, even though John Hamm's like a comedic actor for the most he's part. Good looking too. 
Yeah, he's really good looking. I mean, Adrian Brody's good looking, but in like in a in a very different way. Yeah, no, Tom, <laughs> Thomas Jane is more of that's the guy who steals your girl in yeah. a romantic comedy thing. Like, I can't picture him dirtying himself up and playing someone with a disability because he's just, that's not what he looks like to me. Yeah, like you said, it's a John Hamm problem. Right, yeah, this is John Hamm. So what do you think about Hayden Christensen? Because I like Hayden Christensen, but I don't know if he would have pulled this off. He's got Star Wars money the rest of his life. I mean, I don't think he would have been, he'd done better than Adrian Brody. And it would have brought too much Star Wars baggage to this movie, I feel like. All right, there you go. I agree. Okay, so one more. Um, Here we go. Consider to play for the role of Ivy Walker, who went to Bryce Dallas Howard. Okay, I'm excited about this one. Who who famously, Bryce Dallas Howard, didn't send in an audition tape for it. M. Night saw her in a stage play and cast her immediately. Wow. But before that... M. Night wanted these two women to play Ivy. Here we go. Give me one. Jessica Biel and Kate Hudson. Jessica Biel could have never pulled it off. Ever. In a million (laughs) years. I'm just saying. I mean, I've seen enough things with Jessica Biel. If she was going to have a movie actress career where she could play that sort of a character, she would have done at least one role by now. Agreed. I think Kate Hudson could have done it. Yeah, I think so too. I think like, Kate could have done it easily. She could have slipped in there. I love Bryce Dallas Howard, but I don't think the movie would have been negatively impacted if it was Kate Hudson. I right? Yeah, but Jessica Biel, no, no. Not <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I've never seen her in something where I thought she had any range. So, yeah, wow. I, I, I didn't know any of those casting. I didn't know any of those casting tricks. I'm glad I didn't look those up. <laughs> <laughs> it made it much more fun just off the bat oh god who's he gonna say yeah no it's uh that's what happens and so like you hear about these things and you're just like wow man what this movie would have been so different especially with ashton kutcher <laughs> oh if this movie was ashton kutcher and jessica beale ooh, we would not be talking about this movie and m night Shyamalan would not be making movies yeah he would be directing Twilight Zone episodes for CBS All Access. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, he would, I honestly, if he put those two in here, one of them playing a handicapped person, the other one playing a blind person, I feel like he would have, <laughs> his career would have been over. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, no, it's just, it's so crazy. It's so weird. Oh. Um, so let's talk about so in all m night Shyamalan's movies some more than others he puts himself in the film as a cameo mm-hmm. let's rate the village one where with his cameo he's like a huge dick in this movie yes <laughs> yeah. and like and as opposed to his other movies he's been in this was i think his most artistic cameo because the only way you see his face is when uh kevin the park ranger opens up the glass uh, refrigerator that holds the medicine and you see his reflection (laughs) and that's him for like a second but yeah he's a huge dick in this movie yeah no this is this is the lower tier of Shyamalan cameos of all of his movies that he's in this one what a jerk I know right what what did that park ranger do to him like pee in his coffee steal his wife like he was so mean to that kid and the kid was just like I need a ladder to yeah. do my job. He's like, what do, you, what do you need that for? It's like, what do you mean what do I need that for? I'm a park ranger. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah. And he said like, you know, it was something like you make my, like something happened a couple years ago and it made my life miserable in a living hell that he actually had to get up from his desk and do something. He's like, don't make it miserable for me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, M. Night, what's happening? So I thought that was funny, a little cameo there. Strangest cameo, yes. Uh, I mean, funny, but ugh. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, yeah, just mean. So For no reason. Okay, so earlier in the episode, we said we were going to talk about the stab scene with Adrian Brody and Joaquin Phoenix. So this movie was going to get a, an R rating by the MPAA wow. because of that scene. Specifically, the stab scene, more so specifically, the audio the sound effect of the stabbing going in. Yes. And they took it out to make it PG-13 and it worked better silently. Do you agree or not agree? Oh, so I 100% agree that it worked better silently because I didn't know that he stabbed him. Nobody did. You're just like... Nobody knew he stabbed him until he slow... Because we should... People have seen it. It's from... Joaquin Phoenix and Adrian Brody's point of view. And they're very close to each other, but not, not too close where it's uncomfortable. And they're both looking at each other and they're kind of going back and forth. And then Joaquin Phoenix makes a face where he looks kind of surprised or like something's wrong. And Adrian Brody wipes his snot off his nose and they pan down from Joaquin Phoenix's point of view. And Adrian Brody just pulls out what seems like an endless knife from from Joaquin Phoenix's stomach chest area just covered in blood and then he just crumples to the ground but there's no audio so yeah I'm with you I'm so glad they didn't have audio I think it was so much more effective it was so much scarier to not have the audio because I didn't know what was happening whereas if he came up like that and you heard a (laughs) or you know whatever the sound would be I would have been like oh he's stabbing him that's a and it wouldn't have had the effect yeah like I think you would have heard it and people would have been like oh like that like had yeah. like a like a little short reaction, but after that you knew what happened. But them drawing it out and kind of like in a slow take, seeing everybody's reactions and then looking down the camera going down too was way more visceral and raw. Yeah, well, and let's not forget there's plenty of sound because then the sound comes back in and Joaquin Phoenix just crumples to the ground, and Adrian Brody walks away, picks up the knife, and goes back and just starts relentlessly stabbing him as the camera pans away from what's going on. And you can hear the thuds of Adrian Brody's like fist or whatever, hitting the clothes where it was, it's awful. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It is. It's, it's, it's a disgusting scene. And I'm shocked that they didn't get a, uh, make, so they took that out, but could keep the other types of stabbing. That's something. <laughs> no, it, no, it is something. Well, it's something, well, it's weird because the MPA was like, we're going to give you an R rating for an audio effect. Wow. And not, and then once they took the audio effect of the actual stabbing thing, they gave it a PG-13, even though they showed it the same way. So, and M. Night said, like, yeah, it worked better. It absolutely did. Um, so, should we talk about the controversy of the movie, that alleged plagiarism? Ah. I mean, I don't see it because I think, you know, minds can think alike and have similar... Yeah ways but i think we have to mention it that there was a plagiarism thing somebody sued because there was a book that had a similar aspects to it but no lawsuits were filed though for the right 
Yeah, I feel like this happens, I, especially with horror movies. I feel like it happens right all the time to the point where yeah there's only so many ways you can have an isolated isolated group of people be attacked by monsters to where it's not going to all feel somewhat repetitive so based on all the original ideas i feel like Shyamalan has i'm going to go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt on this one um especially since no lawsuits were filed but yeah you know what are you gonna do right no yep this movie was uh was good and so as with james newton howard's score i mean incredible score if anything was, I mean, I know Bryce Dallas Howard got a lot of critical praise for the film. Yeah. Uh, she was really good, but James Newton Howard's score was nominated for an Oscar. It didn't win, but it was, it was the only thing from the movie to get nominated for an Academy Award, which is saying something. And I don't remember this movie being released on vinyl, which should be because it is wonderful. Incredible score. Yeah. I mean, it's not a huge awards movie. I don't, I, I'd have to go back in time and look at the movies for cinematography, but it was a beautiful movie to look at. And let's face it, anytime Roger Deakins does the cinematography, the movie is, no matter what, objectively going to be a top 10 looking movie of the year. Right. It'd be garbage and it's going to be shot in such an incredible way. Right. So I'm not, I'm not surprised about the awards, but the one thing that I want to talk to you about was... The original ending. Do you yes. think the movie would have worked better with the original ending? Do you think that some of the people like me who got upset about the twist and how it kind of went back on itself, had it ended the way that they originally intended, do you think the utter shock of that would have just had people all abuzz and talking and it would have benefited the movie? Now, the original ending was when she climbs over the fence she lands on a street and there is a car pulling up to her and she kind of looks around. She's obviously blind, but she looks around confused as she hears the vehicles and the guy gets out of the car and says something like, ma'am, where'd you come from? And then it was going to be directed by M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) Do you think that would have worked? No, because it leaves it open-ended like that. Then that would be the point of the movie, which there is no point of the movie, you know, like there, there would be no point. Like you would end it and you're like, Oh, was the point of to tell that this village was just living in the now? No, I'm glad they show them come back, show her come back, make her way back and then discuss like, we're going to keep it this way. You know, we're going to continue to scare everybody into thinking we're in this time. And then her bringing the vials of medicine to her loved one. No, that's the way it should have ended. Right. I, I, it would have been talked about a lot more. No, I'm telling you that, that. That ending you just described with the truck, that's a Curb Your Enthusiasm ending where you can hear the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song. Do, 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 do. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, The the ending in the movie brings all the themes full circle. So I think it worked more. I just, I like the thought of the screen going black and saying directed by and everyone in theater and being like, holy shit, and freaking out. The, The reaction would have been insane. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, let We have to read this. I have to read this because, you know, one of the most regarded film critics of all time is Roger Ebert. Oh. And he wrote a review for this. This The Village made his most hated movie list. Hmm. And this is what he said about it. The Village is a colossal miscalculation, a movie based on a premise that cannot support it, a premise so transparent it would be laughable 
or the movie not so deadly solemn. To call the ending an anti-climax would be an insult not only to climaxes, but to prefixes. It's a crummy secret about one step up the ladder of narrative originality from it was all a dream. It's so witless, in fact, that when we do discover the secret, we want to rewind the film so we don't know the secret anymore. Holy shit, this movie... I don't get it. I feel like if he was still alive today, he would rewatch it and have something else yeah. to say about it. But I mean, he hated this movie. Yeah, that is some, that is harsh. I mean, I get being harsh to movies, but. No, that he loathes it. That's not, yeah, harsh is like, you should have done this better. The movie didn't work for me on any level. This was, you wrapped a piece of crap in wrapping paper and handed it to me. <laughs> like, well, he's trying to say that the, the, the twist and he's the climax of the film was a cop-out. Like it was, it, it was all a dream, you know, or like, you know, it all took place inside a snow globe type of thing. Like we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. So I don't know. I don't, I, I didn't get that when I first saw it. And I don't get that now. I didn't like it when I first saw it, but I wasn't that bad. Like he seems <laughs> like it offended him. Like this movie did something to his family. So <laughs> yeah, no, that, we had to, I had to bring that up. So a lot of people felt that way when the first, the movie first came out, but didn't, you know, wasn't that harsh. However, people coming back to it nowadays have had the 180, uh, the 180 thought about it, how, how good it is. I think that's smart. I mean, that's, so there's another, we're, we don't do any other podcasts on this podcast plugs on this podcast, but there is a movie podcast I listen to. And one of the hosts on there always talks about how it should be a five year Oscars. We should wait five years from when the movies were released and then go back and retroactively give out the awards so that we don't feel dumb for giving movies almost, like the artist. Yeah. Almost all best picture winners from the Oscars are that way. Maybe 1% of them get it right. But he, but it's just, it always cracks me up. He's like, the artist won best picture. You guys realize so that, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's ridiculous. I think the last time they actually got a best picture movie right was The Silence of the Lambs. And that yeah. was like early 90s. <laughs> if not, not like nothing's beat Mad Max yet. No, We're well, Mad Max the- didn't win best picture. <laughs> it, it did not. It should have. We are going. No, I agree. It should have. In my heart, it is still best picture until someone takes that crown. <laughs> <laughs> you're right i agree with you man that movie is insane you know it's really funny you mentioned that because i did an interview with the cast and director of me earl and the dying girl which was one yeah. of the best films of that year yeah and they asked me like we i still have it on camera because before the interview we we're talking about movies like the best movies we've seen this year and I was like, oh, besides your movie? Oh, Mad Max. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like Mad Max, man. Like nothing's going to, I mean, your movie's good, but fucking Mad Max is a different level. Like, have you seen Mad Max? <laughs> yeah, have you seen Mad Max? So, uh, no, I, 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 I get it. I get it. I get it. So uh, there you go, man. There you go. I think that kind of wraps up our... Uh, our fifth episode of Fear and Loathing in Cinema, The Village. Please seek this out. It's it's on Amazon Prime for free, so that's kind of yeah. the only way you can watch unless you have an old school DVD because it has not been released on Blu-ray yet. Interestingly enough, the home video company Kino Lober um, wanted to release it 
and Disney said no. So um, Disney has not released it yet for some reason. I think if they were to release a version of it, they would do pretty well with it. So, because it would be, I mean, I almost hope like Criterion would take this just because there's, I think it's significant and important, but also a cast like that coming back and talking about it because there's a, you know, pretty interesting shoot to talk about and all the themes. I think that would be really cool, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, but seek it out. I mean, this is another, we're, we're on back. To, this movie is worth seeing. It's good. It is a good movie. If you have problems with the ending, that's fine. I still don't think it's perfect, but I, it's a great movie. It's a great, scary movie to watch for the first hour and a half, and then it turns into what it turns into, but it, it wraps it up all nicely, and I think it's a very enjoyable movie. Yep, The Village. Do it on Amazon Prime. Uh, wraps up our episode, Fear and Loathing in Cinema, on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher Radio, or on Boomstick Comics. Please subscribe, tell your friends. I'm Brian Kluger. You can find me at Boomstick Comics, High Def Digest, and Screen Rant. And uh, YouTube, just type in Brian Kluger. Also Instagram, Brian Kluger. And then Dan Rant can be found all over the internet as well. Yes. Where can you? Where can they find you? Oh, I'm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was setting that up, and I. <laughs> you said on the internet as well, and I was like, "That's factual." You can find me on the internet. <laughs> Dan Dan J Moran twenty nine on Instagram, Twitter, Boomstick. I do some reviews on there, so you can find me. You porn? No, all of yeah. it. <laughs> OnlyFans, please like, subscribe my OnlyFans account. <laughs> Yeah, OnlyFans, Dan J. Moran, 29, reviewing movies in the nude. It's good yeah. stuff. <laughs> good stuff. No, we're just playing. Uh, come subscribe. We love you. We'll be back next time with another horror movie in time for Halloween. Perfect. Thanks, guys.